Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we thought we would treat you to the beginning of an early 1980s film trailer. Yeah, before we go any further, uh, take a load of this. For ten centuries it has waited to be awakened, to be worshipped again like a god, to fill the skies, to cast its shadow over the earth, to release its fury. Okay, so it's October. You know we're doing stuff related to monsters, horror movies. What on earth was that, Robert? That was a uh, was it was part of the trailer to Cue the Winged Serpent, released in 1982, uh, written and directed by B movie legend Larry Cohen. Oh, the guy who made God Told Me to. Yeah, also known for It's Alive and The Stuff. This particular film, though, is it's in in my opinion a real gem. Because it's it's 1982 New York, so it's essentially like late 70s New York. Yeah, it it really gets that griminess and that doominess. I've been trying to figure out exactly what it is about like late 70s New York in movies where it just there's this grim, fatalistic, doomy kind of cynicism that everybody's got where it's like they know the end of the world is coming soon. Yeah, I mean, well, what part of it is, uh, I mean, we could do, a, you could do a whole episode, a whole podcast series just on that vibe. I mean, really, the the HBO series The Deuce is kind of attempting to do the same thing, mm-hmm. looking particular at particular areas of uh, of the culture during that time. But yeah, I think there's a certain national cynicism, and then there are uh, obviously some some major issues going on uh, in New York City at the time. Uh, this trailer adds a little extra issue to that heap. That being a giant uh, flying serpentine creature that may or may not be an Aztec god that is roosting somewhere in the city and uh, occasionally uh, 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 soaring down to grab uh, uh, sunbathers off the roofs of uh, New York City uh, skyscrapers. And window washers. Window washers, yeah. Cops. (laughs) Anybody who happens to be up there within reach. Now, essentially, this creature is a dragon, right? It is a giant... Angry-looking bird lizard thing. I don't really. I don't think it has feathers, does it? No, it's, it's very, it's very re- smooth, very reptilian. It looks kind of like um, a winged sauropod with enormous eyes. It's a very strange design, but it's stop motion. So mm-hmm. every moment you spend with it in the film is magic. So this movie is. You know, it's got that that grimy, nasty, sleazy B-movie quality, that late 70s Larry Cohen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of good. It's like it's got a funny script. There's like a great scene where the cops are about to storm the nest of the of the dragon creature and one of them's just drinking a Budweiser. Yeah, it has an ingenious uh, plot because uh, – well, I don't know, maybe not ingenious, but it has a clever plot that I really <laughs> like for a monster movie, uh, uh, which – just to run through the cast real quick. You've got Candy Clark. You have David Carradine. You have Richard Roundtree. <laughs> David Carradine, beta carotene. <laughs> Why is it every time I, I say David Carradine, I want to say beta carotene? I don't know. He's, he's just rich in it, I guess. But most importantly, you have Michael Moriarty. Who's just great at playing a down-on-his-luck sleaze bag. And he really brings it in this movie. Uh, like, re- reviews from the, the year it came out uh, pretty much agreed with this sentiment. They were like, I don't know about this monster movie, but that Michael Moriarty is fabulous. And he is fabulous in it. He plays essentially, yeah, this New York sleaze bag who uh, I think he's involved in a diamond heist and he flees mm-hmm. and he ends up stumbling upon the nest of the, the of Q, the winged serpent. Well, because he just happens to climb to the top of the Chrysler building. Right. I don't remember why he does that. He's just like, well, I'm up here now. But he discovers like where the, the monster that is terrorizing the city is located, where its egg is located. And so what does he do with this heroic information? He blackmails the city. was <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, pay me a million dollars and, and uh, give me immunity for all my crimes or I won't tell you where the egg is. Yes. And there there's some other elements to the plot that are really uh, fun as well. There's one scene, and this is in the trailer, where uh, David DeCaradine's uh, uh, police officer character's detective character says, this thing has been prayed back into existence. 
And there's this whole plot with like an Aztec cult and ritual murders. Um, it's 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 a fabulously fun film. Now, with the nod to the to the cult and with Q standing in for Quetzalcoatl, uh, it's clear that the beast in this film is a monsterified version of the ancient Mesoamerican god Quetzalcoatl. And I think it's worth stopping to appreciate that the the original Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, is not a monster, but is a wholly magnificent god of the heavens. Right, and it's unfair to really to associate it with a bunch of blood sacrifice. Though I, uh, we were discussing this a little um, offline before we came in here. That's often where a lot of people's imagination goes when they are reminded of the Aztec civilization or other Mesoamerican or, or South American civilizations. Yeah, th- this is one thing that I think is is kind of sad and unfair that that Meso- ancient Mesoamerican religions often get associated with human sacrifice. And it's not unfair because there was no human sacrifice. There, there was. It's pretty clear that that was a feature of some ancient Mesoamerican religion. But what's unfair is that it's like Mesoamerican religion gets singled out for association with human sacrifice when human sacrifice is just everywhere in the yeah. ancient world. There's evidence that the ancient Greeks probably did human sacrifice. The you know ancient Nordic religions, the, the Celts and the Scandinavians. I mean, everywhere you look, you'll find evidence of human sacrifice somewhere back in time. So it's not like this was unique to the Mesoamerican religions. So in this episode, we're going to mostly talk about uh, uh, the, the religious origins of Quetzalcoatl, uh, as well as some of the things that it has inspired uh, and may have inspired it. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, serpents that actually sort of fly through the air. We're also going to talk about a particular prehistoric flying creature that has been named in uh, Quetzalcoatl's honor. But let's start with the god itself, Quetzalcoatl, the the plumed serpent. Tell me about this god, Robert. So in reading a bit about the the plumed serpent god, a a number of things became really clear. I was uh, one book I picked up was uh, Rudolfo Anaya's uh, fictional Lord of the Dawn, the legend of uh, Quetzalcoatl, which uh, is I say fictional. Basically, what he attempted to do in this book is to provide a narrative, an easily read narrative uh, version of uh, Quetzalcoatl's uh, story. Okay. Uh, and uh, I actually saw a really good user review for this where they pointed out, you know, with, with Greek myths in particular, it's not just archaeological and anthrop- uh, anthropological uh, information that we're um, exposed to as a kid. We, we're exposed to the stories themselves. We get to kind of experience the stories as just pure stories. And this particular reviewer was saying, you know, I, I, I had trouble finding that with Mesoamerican religions, and this book provided that. Uh, so uh, and the book itself is, is uh, very good. I, uh, I'll mention a little bit more as we go forward. But there's an introduction in this book from the University of New Mexico's uh, David M. Johnson. And uh, he does a great uh, job of just, uh, just rolling through, like, what was Quetzalcoatl? Uh, what did what did it stand for, uh, and, and and what is our what do we know? What do we not know about it? And he points out that there's a lot that we do not know about the Toltec Empire. This would be uh, uh, one of the empires preceding the Aztec Empire. Mm-hmm. He says he said that we're only we're only talking the Mesoamerican world roughly 700 years ago. So we're not going into the 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 ancient past, really. Uh, he says that we know more about Athens of 2,000 years ago or Hebraic traditions uh, from 3,000 years ago. Uh, Mesoamerican world, again, 700 years ago, and there's so much we don't know. And he says this is largely because Spanish friars did what they could to destroy the codices of the Aztecs and the Maya. Uh, we, we have to remember that the most obvious thing here is that this was a world that was um, invaded uh, mm-hmm. by Westerners, uh, by the Spanish, by the Portuguese, uh, and uh, and the, the culture was ravaged for it. On top of this, the hieroglyphic-style books of the Aztecs uh, were there to apparently aid in the memorization of oral literature. So imagine, perhaps, this is just my, my read on the scenario, imagine if only the illustrations and the illuminations of Christian stories survived, but the Bible did not. Or we had, um, you know, mostly artwork to go by uh, in order to figure out what the Greek pantheon consisted of, you know, mm. and what the stories were that were associated with those individuals. Yeah. 
I think that that's just a rough example to sort of outline the problems of not having the, you know, complete access to the information. But so in general, there's been a great loss of Mesoamerican literature that was in many ways caused by colonialism. Yeah, he, he pointed out in this that only something like 16 books survive, uh, three Mayan, uh, six Oaxaca uh, books, and that most of what we know about pre-conquest culture in Mesoamerica comes from archaeological evidence and post-conquest scribes and scholars. But Quetzalcoatl seems to have existed in uh, this pantheon, pantheon of uh, Mesoamerican uh, culture uh, for a while is this kind of wind god who creates the earth by lifting up the heavens. And he was probably a, a very old god emerging from the beliefs of coastal regions associated with shells and wind and sea. Hmm. The, the, uh, the Quetzal part of his name refers to uh, a rare bird with precious green feathers, feathers used in ceremonial dresses and um, – uh, I should point out that there you you can look up pictures of quetzals. There are like five different species of quetzals, and their and their feathers are quite beautiful. They're found in Mexico and the extreme southern United States. Yeah, I think does the does the name refer to their long tail feathers? Is that right? I believe so. Yeah, and these would have been uh, used in uh, uh, various religious attire. They are beautiful birds. And now the coatl aspect of the name that refers to a snake tied to earth energy, fertility, and the cyclical nature of life. So in this combo, uh, this god, we have a convergence of earthly and spiritual energy. Uh, we have a creature of the ground and a creature of the sky, both as one. And he went by other names as well. He was known as uh, Kukulkan in the Yucatan and Gukumats in Guatemala. And devotion to the feathered serpent uh, spread as far north as New Mexico and uh, south uh, to uh, Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia. And, of course, outside of this tradition, obviously, we have to point to the fact that this is not the only tradition that involves a winged serpent. You encounter feathered serpents in other religions as well uh, in, in, in Europe and Asia. And essentially, as we pointed out with, with Q uh, from the movie, it's, it's not that different from other ideas of a dragon, a great, holy, winged creature. No, I don't want to – try to over-smooth or over-conform the differences between uh, different mythical beasts from around the world. But I, I am always fascinated by the fact that it seems to me, you know, if, if I'm not over, you know, over-generalizing, that so many different cultures have something like a dragon. You know, yeah. there's the European dragon, the ancient Near Eastern dragon, the Chinese dragon. And then if we're, we're saying Quetzalcoatl is in many ways kind of like a dragon. Is that um, is that just us seeing patterns and things that are objectively not all that similar? Or is that really a pattern? And if so, what is it that causes dragon imagery to arise spontaneously in so many different cultures around the world? Yeah, I mean, you can also tie in just the serpentine aspect of it. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. there are a lot of world serpents in mythologies. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said about our, our, our basically our, our encoded response to the sight of a snake. Um, if if cats had a, a god of the sky they worship, perhaps it would be a, a what is it a cucumber, uh, <laughs> cucumber with yeah. wings in the sky. Uh, it, I, and again, I, yeah, we don't want to overgeneralize things, but I, I feel like there are certain creatures of the earth that humans have a, a, a natural uh, heightened response to, and then mm. add you know several thousand years worth of uh, myth building and world building on top of that and you get some curious forms. Well, yeah, I wonder if this goes back to something we talked about like in our uh, – the first monster episode mm -hmm. where we discussed the idea that what types of animal forms would become most embedded and revered in human consciousness. And yeah. you, you would tend to assume it might be something like a, an apex predator or some animal representing danger, but then also bringing in qualities that we associate with like intelligence and human characteristics. Yeah. But also just a minute ago, I think you mentioned something about uh, the cyclical nature of, of the world and of time. Now, I figured that had something to do with uh, with the ancient Mesoamerican theology we're talking about here, right? Yeah, the, the belief system in ancient Mexico is one in which you had uh, various ages that had preceded our own. Uh, each fallen age was ruled over by an appropriate god. So you had ages of water, ages of fire, each ended by disharmony between the forces that must otherwise exist in balance. And, and these were not strictly moral uh, dimensions of good versus evil, 
but forces uh, apparently more akin to Eastern models of yin and yang. Hmm. Um, though there is a timeless struggle at the heart of this, and it is, I think, very easy to categorize uh, the two players in it into sort of a, a good versus evil interpretation. Uh, you, but then again, that's our Western minds approaching it too. Right. You might want to put things in the familiar categories and say you've got God and the devil, but it's not quite that case with what Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca. Yes, Tezcatlipoca, whose name apparently means smoking mirror, referring oh. to the obsidian mirrors used in worship. That's so good. So, yeah, so it's essentially, he's essentially the god of the black mirror. Wow. Um, interestingly enough, that black mirror came up in an episode that Christian and I did on um, John D. Hmm. The, uh, the the English um, uh, really polymath, but also uh, sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a mirror that uh, that originated in South America or uh, Mesoamerica. What did he use it for? Well, magic, of course. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you're going to have a an obsidian mirror of um, of Tezcatlipoca, of, of you're going to you better be using it for magic. Uh, but anyway, these uh, these two beings they, they created the world. It's said by tearing apart a primordial earth goddess. The world was created from the parts of her body uh, out of remorse uh, from the two gods um, uh, for, the, the, their, for her unfortunate death. And they also created man and woman. Um, there's a, an interesting little story where um, uh, Quetzalcoatl uh, himself has to, has to make a regular pilgrimage into the land of the dead, into uh, Mictlan. Uh, and there he has to complete a series of trials uh, for its king and queen uh, so that they'll let him bring the old bones of the dead back up to the surface and then use their ground-up substance to create the next generation of humans. Wow, that's good. Yeah, and, uh, and, and again, in this we see you know, models here that are present elsewhere in the world. And we're reminded of, uh, you know, the harrowing of hell or, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, you know, the uh, descents into the underworld in, uh, in, the, in Greek mythology. Uh, maybe Isis and Osiris? Yeah, yeah. This is a story as old as human time anyway. Mm-hmm. On top of this, um, uh, Quetzalcoatl uh, is also a culture bringer. Oh, okay. So he, uh, we associated with architecture, art. And the sacred calendar. Yet another theme we see in religions all throughout the world, the, the, this ancient figure, uh, a figure from the gods bringing knowledge or customs or culture, cultural practices to the humans. Yeah. Now, according to, to Johnson, um, Quetzalcoatl was a major object of worship from around 200 to 900 CE in the urban center of uh, Teotihuacan, uh, a city of Mesoamerican pyramids and some 200,000 residents. So the Toltecs would inherit this city and uh, dominate Mexico uh, through the 12th century. And worship of Quetzalcoatl really took off in the 10th century uh, where we have this case where the, the myth really melded with history. He became associated with a cultural hero named Se Acatl Topiltzin. And so, so you get this idea that Topiltzin, this historic figure, uh, by some estimates like the, the oldest historical figure uh, in Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, he, he becomes merged. We, we end up merging Quetzalcoatl and Topiltzin into a single entity. Uh, he becomes the incarnation of the feathered god. And in doing this, Topiltzin becomes a, a spiritual figure of peace. Uh, and in doing so, he alienates the more uh, militaristic segments of society that don't want to give up human sacrifice and war, mm. two things that uh, uh, Topiltzin is opposed to, huh. saying, you know, hey, maybe we don't need to be at constant war with our neighbors. Maybe we don't need to sacrifice human beings. Maybe we can just sacrifice, uh, I think it's like, you know, butterflies and lizards and whatnot as oh, opposed wow. to, uh, to, to humans. Uh, and uh, and I have to point out in in his retelling of this tale, uh, because Ru- Rudolfo Anaya's uh, retelling really is concerned with this incarnation of mm-hmm. Quetzalcoatl. He does a great he has a great way of characterizing this in a very believable way, not a xenophobic barbarian approach where you where you'd be like, oh, one guy's saying, let's not kill everybody. Of course, let's do something peaceful. Instead, it, you know, he's he's putting it in a form that feels um, very modern in some respects, where where the uh, opposing king is saying, look, I mean, human sacrifice is what we do. Uh, We have to have armies. Uh, We have to have firm borders. We need to expand and get more farmland. We have to have war. And uh, and, uh, uh, Topiltzin is standing in opposition to that. Yeah. So it represents chaos. Right. Often peace is represented as chaos. Yeah. So he's a major threat to the establishment. 
So uh, the story goes that um, uh, the, the king uh, conspires with three sorcerers uh, to deal with uh, Topiltzin. And Wait, one of, this is the militaristic king? Right, yes. Okay. And one of the uh, sorcerers is none other than Quetzalcoatl's uh, archenemy, uh, Tezcatlipoca, in human form. Whoa. So uh, they end up using a black mirror to tempt Topiltzin. Uh, they corrupt – and in doing so, they corrupt him and make him fully carnal. So he like loses his god nature? Yeah. It's, it's like a gradual thing. Like they show him the mirror and he sees himself and becomes a little vain. And uh, then there's a, you know, an additional level. I think it's a very, very much like a rule of three type thing. And uh, eventually they bring about his downfall and he's you know, fully carnal. Mm-hmm. And after that, he, he, uh, he has been defeated. He lays in a stone coffin for four days and then he emerges. He departs uh, on a raft of snakes and then he immolates himself and the ashes become uh, rainbow-colored birds that uh, ascend into the sky. And in doing so, Quetzalcoatl uh, passes away from the earth. But he promises to return, uh, however, uh, to, to reincarnate at some point in the future in the year, say, a coddle. Uh, and this is the, the Aztec calendar. Okay. So the result of this, though, uh, and then again, we have this situation where the myth and the history are, are uh, entangled. But uh, Topiltzin, the individual, uh, is brought down, and society ends up splintering, splintering, and then the, the, the in doing so, the Toltec dynasty crumbles. Uh, but he remains a, a messianic figure, driven out in disgrace, dying in exile, but prophesies to return. Well, that is a great story. It makes me want to read this book. By uh, this is this is all from the Rudolfo Anaya book. Yes, like I say, the the introduction's fabulous, and the book itself is wonderful too. It's short. It's a short read, uh, so I recommend it. Yeah, I've got to check that out. But I guess we need to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can explore more about this story. All right, we're back. All right, so we started off by talking about kind of kind of the crude version of the plumed serpent idea as it as it appears in say slimy bee movies from mm-hmm. the early eighties, and then we got into the idea of Quetzalcoatl as actually this magnificent god from Mesoamerican religion. And Robert, you told the story uh, from from this excellent sounding book about Quetzalcoatl's. Uh, coming down to embody this character in, in the history of the empire and how, how all that played out when the hero was betrayed and exiled and the idea that he might return. So let's pick up from there. All right. Well, let's, let's jump right in. So one of the issues here is that so far we've been discussing Quetzalcoatl in a pre-Columbian sense. And when we say pre-Columbian uh, Americas, we're of course talking about before the arrival of Columbus, before the uh, adv- arrival of uh, of the, the various uh, Western colonial powers. Right, the colonial that, invaders. Yeah, that would subjugate the, the both continents. Mm-hmm. And so in this we come to uh, an idea we've discussed on the show before, and that is uh, the idea of an outside context problem. Now, this was a term coined by the late sci-fi author uh, Ian M. Banks to describe a problem faced by a civilization um, that, uh, that has no ability to prepare for or scarcely comprehend the problem they're faced with. An, uh, an OCP, as, as one may refer to it, is often fatal, and most societies or civilizations uh, only ever encounter one of them. The most uh, common example is one civilization suddenly encountering another civilization of far greater technological power, such as humans encountering an alien species that can travel between the stars. But a less extreme version of this, of course, could simply be encountering a civilization that has much more advanced weapons of war. Exactly. For example, uh, beings that uh, are encased in iron and traverse uh, entire oceans in great wooden vessels and capture the power of wind to do so, whose weapons pierce the air like thunder and whose very, very bodies exude a creeping death that cannot be stopped. Uh, and, and in this, we have the conquistadors. We have the armies of Hernan Cortes, the conquerors of the Spanish Empire uh, that arrive in Mesoamerica. And of course, we know that the European colonial invaders brought more than one kind of warfare. It wasn't just the explicit technologies. It was like steel armor and swords and guns and stuff. It was also biological warfare. So in the case of the Spanish arriving in in Mesoamerica, this is obviously a a, a situation where there was a a lot of destruction, a lot of cultural destruction. This was a catastrophic event for the peoples of the Americas. So we mentioned the uh, year uh, Se uh, Acatl earlier. 
the uh, the year that uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl was prophesized to return. Mm-hmm. So that year does, that year ends up rolling around once more. And by Western measure, this was the year fifteen nineteen, uh, and this was the year as well that Cortez arrived. Oh no! So you can understand the confusion, right? Uh, you look and you say, well, here, surely this is Quetzalcoatl uh, returned uh, to claim his throne, attended to by an unnatural army and arriving on what was described as perhaps floating mountains or even the four mythic temples of Quetzalcoatl. Interesting. Now, I had heard before the idea that when, say, Cortez and his armies arrived, that the that they were perceived as gods. And I didn't know if that was actually historically true or historically likely, or if maybe that was like an untrue rumor or Spanish tale, do you have do you have a sense of whether that's actually historically accurate? Well, it seems to be. There seem again, we don't have complete knowledge of everything that went down, but there do seem to be a, a few different ways of interpreting this, uh, from what I've seen so far. Uh-huh. So you're dealing primarily with uh, uh, with the, the ruler Moctezuma the second, sometimes referred to as Montezuma. Okay, uh, and. Uh, and so he's he he sees this he sees what's happening he sees the the, the Spanish that have arrived, and um, you could say that either oh well he and his people think they're gods or perhaps just the the the, the weirdness of this is enough to make them hesitate. You they know? didn't know how to respond. They didn't know yeah. how to respond. Yeah, I mean that's the problem of an outside context problem is that you, you have no context for it and therefore you don't have a, a response. Yeah, uh, and uh, readily available at hand. Wisdom is often prudence, holding back and, and you know not acting hastily. Right. So, and you also have other factors at work here. We mentioned uh, the, the disease factor. Uh, you also have the fact that the invaders uh, are, are fairly quick to align themselves with the enemies of the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. Like they it doesn't take them long to figure out like what are the the power dynamics and how they can exploit the situation. In However, it ends up exactly playing out. It's clear that you know the Aztec Empire uh, has, is toppled within two years. Uh, uh, Moctezuma II becomes a, a mere prisoner. But there was an, there's another interpretation of events here uh, that uh, I thought was fascinating, and that is that Moctezuma II uh, was apparently you know he's worried by the portents of doom, and in the typical mold of rulers, somewhat paranoid about plots. Against him, and then he meets Cortez and his Spanish retinue, uh, who were, oh, you know, also in awe of this great city, uh, and they're also uh, would that that would be Tenochtitlan, yes, and they're they, and again they've aligned themselves with with enemies of the Aztec Empire, and so he ends up presenting Cortez with quote the treasure of Quetzalcoatl. Okay, so Moctezuma presents Cortez with like a. Uh a, a religiously significant piece of raiment, uh, a, a costume, right. And uh, as uh, explored uh, briefly in Robert Draper's National Geographic magazine article, Unburying the Aztec, uh, it's possible, too, that Montezuma II was, quote, cunningly outfitting Cortez in the godly garment of the soon-to-be-sacrificed. So, again, he doesn't really get into this a lot in this article, but think back again to the the rise and fall of Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl is uh, a king prophesied to return— but also a king whose very story is one of sacrifice and death. Mm. So perhaps the idea is that uh, Montezuma was maybe not so much a fly trapped in the web of symbols and myth, but a spider trying one last clever trick to ensnare his enemy within the trappings of symbol and myth to turn the people against him by essentially laying a trap of religious belief. Interesting. I wasn't able to find much else on this this read, this theory, but I, I find that fascinating. It reminds me of our our episode on uh, ritual regicide, the idea uh-huh. that uh, that uh, even rulers can be trapped within this uh, this mythic uh, cycle of death and rebirth. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that episode much recently, but that was a really interesting one. Yeah, yeah where we we talked about all the the traditions of the sacrifice of the king. You often think of the king sacrificing, like you know, other people, captured enemies, or whatever. Yeah, but sometimes occupying a position of glory also puts a target on you, even a even a sacred or religious target. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting read in this scenario. Obviously, that plan, if that was the plan, uh, did not work. Yeah. So what happens after uh, an outside context problem? Well, you end up with a struggle for cultural survival. 
Um, I mean, that's kind of, in a way, the best case scenario, assuming you're not just completely destroyed, decimated by the encounter. And uh, one of the methods by which the old ways may be preserved is within the new. And we see this tradition of merging the idea of Quetzalcoatl with the apostle St. Thomas from Christian traditions, who is said to have traveled far preaching the gospel. Hmm. And you see this, and this is, you know, after the fact, this is certainly more common in, say, the uh, uh, the 17th century. Uh, but you see this merging of iconography and identity, where you have the, 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 the plumed uh, serpent god essentially uh, crossed over with this Christian apostle. And uh, by the 17th century, writers and priests began to make more of these comparisons, and the trend ended up dying back down in the 19th century. But, uh, but, it's, but it's, it's fascinating to look at how these two uh, figures became – once more, Quetzalcoatl became associated, merged with a historic individual. You know, I'm tempted to think that uh, – I know the uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe that Jesus himself came and preached in the Americas, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you, you do see this trend within uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of some individuals – uh, reinterpreting uh, Quetzalcoatl as Jesus Christ. Wow. This, oddly enough, though, I have to point out, has no connection to the so-called Jesus lizard <laughs> of southern Mexico and Central America, uh, creatures that also bear the name of our previous topic, the basilisk. Right, the basilisk lizards that can run on top of the water. Yeah. Apparently have nothing to do with Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, they're, they're real lizards uh, as opposed to uh, mythological snake guy. Now, speaking of reptiles, lizards, snakes, all, all that kind of stuff, one of the other avenues we wanted to explore the idea of the plumed serpent in is in, uh, stepping out of the uh, the specific religious context of Quetzalcoatl himself, also getting away from the weird Larry Cohen monster version, and looking at biology. So, Robert, do you want to go to a mental place with me? Okay. Let's do it. Close your eyes and imagine. Okay. Imagine you're wandering through the jungle in Malaysia. In one nearby tree, you notice a snake with a speckled body of black, green, and gold climbing vertically up the trunk of the tree. And it uses its uh, the scales on its underbelly to sort of grip the bark and slowly make its way up the tree. And eventually, it forks off of the main trunk to explore a branch. And you wonder, what's it doing up there? Is it looking for something? Maybe it's looking for a bird's nest to raid or a sleeping bat to eat. And it doesn't find anything on the branch, but it keeps following the branch farther and farther out. And you're like, where is it going? There's not that much branch there, right? And mm -hmm. then it goes all the way to the tip of the branch and there's just nothing, nowhere left for it to go. Why is it doing that? And you might be wondering this when suddenly the snake coils its head off the branch in kind of a, a hanging J shape and then it dives straight off the branch straight in your direction. Whoa. So obviously you might flinch and take cover, right, because a snake just dove straight at you. But then you realize it's not – its path is not following a straight line. It's actually not diving straight at you at all because immediately after the snake leaves the branch, it stops plunging down at a sharp angle and begins gliding smoothly through the air in a kind of horizontal pattern as its body undulates in an S shape. And then finally it lands in an another tree branch high above your head in a different tree. You have just watched a snake fly, and these snakes are real. This would I can, I can see this would be a very alarming thing because, again, if we have an innate fear of snakes and an innate – well, if, even if not a fear, at least a hyper-awareness to them. Right. Like realizing that snakes can pose a risk to our mortality – and then here's one flying through the air like they see, they should not be able to do. They should be creatures of the ground. And this one is seemingly a creature of, of the air. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the thing that should not be. You could not blame someone for reacting with horror and awe. But one thing I should be clear about immediately is that these types of snakes, I believe they are venomous but not especially venomous. So they're not really dangerous okay. to humans. I mean, generally, we don't want to promote snake fear of any kind. But these especially, they're, they're not really dangerous to humans. So there are five species of snake in the genus Chrysopelia, native to South and Southeast Asia, including countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, India, South China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and other places, generally Southern and Southeast Asia. They generally grow up to about 1.2 meters or about four feet long, and Chrysopelia are the flying snakes, or perhaps more appropriately, the gliding snakes, oh, yes. because you've got to make that important distinction. I would say usually the way we use the word flying 
means to travel horizontally through the air on your own power. You know, it's self-powered flight in a way that can theoretically continue gaining altitude. Whereas gliding is using existing momentum, the momentum you've already got to travel horizontally through the air without losing altitude too fast. Airplanes fly, hang gliders glide. And these snakes glide. So on average, these snakes can cover a horizontal distance of about 10 meters or about 33 feet from a branch at a starting height of about 9 meters or about 29.5 feet. Uh, Some reports have them flying much farther. I read a National Geographic article that claimed they've been known to glide up to 100 meters horizontally, but I couldn't determine the source of that claim. It seems kind of nuts, but maybe, you know, we can take it. So in order to fly like that, obviously the snakes, they can't flap their wings. They don't have wings. So what do they do? How do you generate uh, the, the lift to glide like that? And the answer is instead of flapping their wings, they turn their whole body into a wing. Mm. Uh, so wings work, and this would be the simple version, by guiding airflow in such a way as to generate lift. And generally they do this by trying to form a relatively flat horizontal surface under which air can flow and push the flying object up against gravity. So if you're a snake and you want to turn your snake body into a wing or a pseudo-wing, one thing you'd probably want to do is make yourself as flat and as wide as possible. And that's exactly what they do. So in recent years, a few studies, often associated with a Virginia Tech biologist named Jake Soka, have uh, captured and analyzed high-speed video of the flying snakes and also made digital and physical models based on these analyses to understand how they glide from tree to tree. And what they found is that these snakes can literally splay their own ribs out to the sides and flatten their body into a semi-concave cross-section. So imagine a snake, you know, you normally imagine the skeleton of a snake. It's got a backbone and then kind of a, a circle of ribs forming almost a cylinder, right? So imagine that C shape of the ribs instead spreading out like a bird opening its wings. The ribs spread out kind of flat. And in doing this, the snake can basically double its width. But then it also undulates in an S shape as it glides with waves traveling down the length of the body. And this also helps keep it aloft. So the whole process begins with a ballistic dive where the snake reaches off of the off of the branch, spreads its ribs and goes flat, gathers its body into an S shape, and then it begins to wriggle the S shape in large amplitude undulations. And this process allows the snake, instead of falling straight toward the ground, to glide at an angle of about 15 degrees to about 35 degrees until it floats down at its target destination. Speaking to the BBC for an article, Soka characterized it as sort of like the animal is swimming in air. Oh, wow. I could see where that, just seeing something like that would open the door for mystical interpretations. Yeah, you've got to wonder, if somebody saw that in ancient times, how would they not come up with some kind of dragon based on it or something? Yeah. Now, of course, this is, not, uh, this is not something that you would find in Mesoamerica. So we're not saying that this snake inspired the, uh, the Quetzalcoatl story or anything like that. But you can see how similar ideas of flying serpents, plumed serpents might be inspired by something like this. Now, of course, every article about this research also mentions, Robert, can you guess what it also mentions in the very last paragraph of every one of these articles? Uh, snakes on a plane? <laughs> no. Okay. What will we use this knowledge of analyzing snake flight to do? Oh, yes. Well, that's, that's the, 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 the closing of any good science article, right? What are the practical uh, applications? Build robots. Always robots, it says build robots. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many of these. I wish we could just get – more science articles that say, you know what, it's just great to study snakes and they don't have to justify it at the end by saying we will use this knowledge one day to build weapons, snakes that fly into enemy territory in ways you can't possibly imagine. <laughs> well, but at the same time, I do understand that, you know, you, you want to end on a really strong awe note um, mm-hmm. with a science article. And, and, and oftentimes it's the, the future applications, like that's where you find that gold. But these snakes themselves inspire awe. Look this up. <laughs> Watch the videos. Imagine this is a snake flying. I mean, it's not, it's not gaining, out, but it's gliding tree to tree. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to see. This is what's all inspiring. I, not, not to knock people who make robots. I mean, making robots is great. I'm I, I didn't mean to come off overly strong there. I, I'm, all, I'm all for robots, but come on. You don't have to justify it by making robots. You could just study snakes and that'd be great. I can get behind that. 
one more thing, of course, to mention is that there are, of course, also flying lizards. Again, if you oh, want to go in the, the sort of flying reptile direction. Again, this would be gliding, not flying. But the Draco lizards of the Draco genus are also found in Southeast Asia. And they've got rib flaps that fold up against the body when not in use. But they can be spread out to form a wing and allow the lizard to glide between trees. Now – the thing I was wondering is why would snakes and lizards need to glide between trees? What's useful about that? And so there, I think there are a couple of hypotheses. One is that once you're already up in a tree and you want to get in another tree, it might take less energy to glide to another tree than to climb down and climb back up. Yeah, that makes sense. But then the other thing, maybe the bigger thing, is that crossing the forest floor exposes you to large predators. The forest mm. floor is the danger zone. Once you're up in a tree, you're safer. So once you are in the safety of a tree, it would be much better if you could glide from tree to tree instead of having to go back down across the the forest floor and maybe get picked up by a leopard along the way. Now, this might not be a factor, but it also seems like if, if something were perhaps following you or stalking you, mm. um, you know, this is a great way to escape them from one tree to the other. You can glide and it can't. Yeah. If there's a monkey in the tree that wants to eat you, you know, you can glide farther than that monkey can jump. Potentially, yeah. Though some of those monkeys can jump. Right. <laughs> All right. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will discuss the king of the beastly flyers of the ancient past – the pterosaurs. All right, we're back. Robert, take me to the pterosaurs. All right. Well, we're talking about one particular pterosaur. We're all familiar with pterosaurs, I think, at this point. These are the, 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 the flying creatures of, of the prehistoric world, uh, the, the, the flying lizards of the prehistoric world. Not uh, dinosaurs. Right, not dinosaurs. You call them a dinosaur – uh, your six-year-old will correct you. Um, <laughs> I have I have had this happen before. Because sometimes it, you you do just sort of like a like a non like non scientifically you just refer to everything from the dinosaur age as a dinosaur, and uh, yeah, it's in, yeah, and inaccurate to call everything uh, a dinosaur. Uh, so the the king or one of the kings of the um, of the pterosaurs was undisputably uh, a creature that is uh, that now bears the name uh, Quetzalcoatlus. And you'll never guess what he's named after. <laughs> he's <laughs> named after Quetzalcoatl, the, uh, the, 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 the Mesoamerican snake god. Robert, you actually did a reading from a children's book uh, on the podcast one time that had a great little you know, sub-story about Quetzalcoatlus. And it ended with this, this I am Quetzalcoatlus. Yes. Uh, I forget the author's name offhand. But if you do a search for I am Quetzalcoatlus or I am uh, – I think there's one on uh, – Diplodocus as well, uh, but they're all like really they're, they're all really good children's books about dinosaurs that do not candy coat uh, the life and death nature of uh, of, a, of a prehistoric creature's life. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about uh, as far as Quetzalcoatlus goes, we're talking about uh, the Cretaceous period, uh, and we're talking about uh, the region uh, that is uh, now known as North America. Uh, first fossils uh, were discovered in Texas in the early 1970s, and this. This creature was apparently just a a flying monster. This thing was huge. incredibly huge. Uh, the estimated wingspan, and this is something that's changed over the years. That was higher than they kind of, they've kind of scaled back. Uh, but uh, current uh, data seems to put it uh, estimated at around thirty three to thirty six feet, or ten to eleven meters. Wow, that's roughly the wingspan of a mid sized airplane. For instance, uh, the World War II U.S. fighter uh, P-51 Mustang, that had a wingspan of 37 feet or 11.28 meters. The swept wingspan of an F-14 Tomcat, that's the, uh, the fighter plane from Top Gun for anybody uh, who can make that connection, uh, that has a swept wingspan of 38 feet or 11.55 meters. What, what does swept mean? Uh, so the, the uh, F-14 uh, can fly with its wings in a swept position or in an extended position. Oh, I see. When, yeah. it's, when it becomes sort of streamlined. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was a great G.I. Joe uh, toy airplane that was essentially an F-14, uh, and it had wings that moved like that. That's my main connection with it. <laughs> so compared to other things that fly and have wings, this thing was an absolute beast. Absolutely. I mean, even <laughs> if it's on the ground, uh -huh. this was a huge creature. So in a bipedal stance, it would have stood roughly – three meters or 9.8 feet tall. And uh, it may have scrambled uh, around in like this kind of quadrupedal stance, however, much like a bat. Have you ever seen a, um, 
A bat's crawl. A bat's yeah. crawl or some of the, I think there's it's one. It's creepy looking. It's, it's creepy, yeah. There's one particular, uh, I believe there's even one particular species of bat that's prim- primarily uh, ground-based. Uh, and it is, yeah, it's kind of creepy to look at. So this thing might have scrambled around like that. But my many estimates, including uh, Ruda and Binton in Evolution of Morphological Disparity in Pterosaurs from 2011, this uh, mighty flying beast would have probably stu- stood roughly as tall as a modern-day giraffe, but with just a far larger head. Yeah, kind of like giraffe with with like a screwed-up lizard-like pelican head. Yeah, like this great squatting winged beast. Just imagine that thing looming over you. I feel like th- this thing should be right up there with the Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, b- people should appreciate it on the, on the same level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't. I mean, really, it's t- it's amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's. I mean, certainly, all the pterosaurs are amazing creatures uh, yeah. to look back on. This uh, this evolved mode of flying that uh, that again is is a little bit different from um, from birds or bats. It is like we have essentially three modes of vertebrate flight that evolved, and this mm-hmm. is one of them. And that's talking about powered flight, not right. gliding. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, you know, in, in thinking about this, you know, again, it would have it would have seemed like a god if you were able to see it. And uh, I, I can't help but think of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, uh, Pellucidar, I believe is the pronunciation, uh, series of books. That's a setting that he did. I haven't uh, read them. Uh, I, I haven't, haven't either, but I, I, I was introduced to them just by some of the art initially. They feature a psychic master race of flying reptiles called the Mahars. And they pop up uh, – they also pop up in the 1976 movie At the Earth's Core starring Peter Cushing. Yes. Doug McClure. Oh, boy. And Caroline Monroe. Wow. I've got to see that. You, How have I not? Well, I'll tell you. It's actually one of the movies in the most recent uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 se- really? uh, season. So With that all-star cast? That all-star cast. If you want to see, see Peter Cushing just totally uh, misused in a film, this is a great place to find it. Peter Cushing was misused in about 90% of the films he was in. Yeah. <laughs> but this one especially because you got Doug McClure in there to play kind of a goofus, which he did well. I love Doug McClure. Yeah, he's the classic uh, mid-century movie lug. Yeah. But then Peter Cushing also kind of plays a doofus. So it's like, like he's a scientist doofus and then you have like two different levels of doofus going up against uh, forces they can't uh, How barely sharp? comprehend. How sharp are his cheekbones in it? Does he cut anything with them? I don't know. They might have been dulling a, a bit by that point, I have to say. Um, but uh, but he's still – it's still Peter Cushing, so it's still uh, a lot of fun. But you have these kind of wretched-looking uh, Terrasar, Mahar uh, uh, creatures that show up in the film. Uh, there's also a uh, – I think it's a Boris Vallejo uh, painting that was done for one of these uh, book covers that has, a, of course, a, like a, a scantily clad woman uh, and there's this Terrasar creature, one of these Mahars, creeping up on her mm. to snatch her away. Because, you know, it's Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's, right. that's kind of the plot. Yeah. Uh, and I can't help but assume that the Mahars also inspired the Savage Land mutant Sauron from the X-Men comics. Not Sauron from Lord of the Rings, but the what is essentially like a Terrasar humanoid that the mutants uh, battle in those comic books. Okay, so what else do we know about this creature, the Quetzalcoatlus? All right, well, in a way, it's fitting that the creature is named for a god with so much mystery around it because a lot of mystery remains surrounding this massive uh, winged prehistoric creature. And this, of course, is par for the course with fossil remains. Paleontologists have to solve the riddle of the remains as best they can. Mm-hmm. We have all these you know, massive gaps in the, in, the, in the fossil record, and that's just part of trying to understand the past through fossils. Uh, we have, uh, I th- based on, I think, current uh, data, we have, I think, only one adult uh, Quetzalcoatlus fossil to go off of, and it's only wing fragments. Hmm. The other uh, specimens have been like smaller, uh, like younger uh, uh, specimens. Yeah. So we, we've seen a wide range of estimates then regarding the flying or gliding abilities of the Quetzalcoatlus. Uh, a creature with more of an inland range than many of its flying relatives. So we don't know exa- we don't know for sure to what extent it flew. Exactly. Uh, for instance, uh, Donald M. Henderson went so far in his 2009 Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology article to wonder if it could fly at all. He he argued that given its estimated body mass, this was maybe a flightless creature. Oh yeah, it might be like uh, the ostrich of pterosaurs or something. Right. Um, yeah, you always 
have to wonder because, I mean, so there are limits on the size that an organism could reasonably be expected to fly, right? You know, you might wonder like how come dragons don't exist? Why, why don't we see birds with a hundred foot wingspan? Mm-hmm. And I think part of that has to do with like how, how mass scales up with uh, relationship to volume, right? Like one of the reasons you can't get super giant creatures is there would be cooling problems with like the surface area of the giant creature to how much stuff it's got inside it. Right. Um, and you would probably encounter similar problems when you keep trying to scale up bigger and bigger flying organisms. As the mass keeps going up, it's going to take more and more power to lift that mass off the ground. And, you know, it, well, you, you can you can generate lift in multiple ways. You can have bigger wings, but eventually like you'd run into structural problems like where bones would not be strong enough to support the wings at a certain amount of you know size and weight. Uh, or you could have more powerful muscles to flap them harder and faster, but eventually you might run into fuel problems. I mean, there are just physics limits on how big a flying organism can get. And you know, I have to say that a, a flightless Quetzalcoatlus is terrifying in its own way because here it would be a, a situation where here's a creature that is like I don't have to fly anymore mm. because I'm enormous and I will just eat you with my toothless beak I will just gobble you up I mean I want uh, this is not based on evidence this is just speculating I, I wonder if you could also imagine something like a chicken where it's not a flying bird but it's a bird that can sort of like use wings to get off the ground for a short period of time. I mean mm-hmm. you, you wonder about like maybe it doesn't sustain flight but it sort of like hops up and flies very briefly in order to swoop down and pounce something. Right. But this is not the only argument. You have the the other end of the spectrum for instance where a British paleontologist Mark Witten uh, working with biomechanics researcher uh, Mike Habib modeled the creature in, two, in 2010 and argued that it could fly up to 80 miles an hour, 128 kilometers per hour, for 7 to 10 days at altitudes of 15,000 feet or 4.6 kilometers with a maximum range of between 8,000 and 12,000 miles. That's up to 19,312 kilometers. Wow. So that's some range. Yeah, that is – so if you're a Flintstone and you want to ride a dinosaur for like a – for an, a transoceanic flight, this is the one you want to snag. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a dinosaur. Sorry, a pterosaur. Quetzalcoatlus air. Yeah. <laughs> but then we also have more balanced approaches uh, falling in between these two. For instance, uh, paleobiologist David Unwin believes that the creatures could certainly fly, but we don't really have a lot else to go on. Again, think to the, the limited fossils we talked about earlier. He, he argues that the, the distance estimates here might be just premature. It's also been argued in some of these models that the creature, if it could fly, you know, it could probably get aloft uh, via a high-powered four-legged pounce into the air, mm. which uh, I have to say that is alone is just amazing to, tr- to try and envision. Imagine yeah. this massive dump truck of a creature just launching into the air and then flapping like crazy and uh, and ascending. A winged giraffe with yeah. a giant pelican head leaping into the clouds. And then once it's once it's up or or once it lands again, the, the question is, well, what does it eat? <laughs> well, uh, one theory you, was the answer is you. Yeah, well, yes, if we were if we were around, that would that would probably be a, a possibility. But one theory was that it was a scavenger and it used its long beak to like dig into dino corpses, mm-hmm. uh, which would uh, also seem to work given their inland range. You know, so this is not a thing that's going out and eating a, a lot of sea creatures, uh, but perhaps it's flying over vast distances and encountering uh, dead dinosaurs and it can go down and, and feast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, flying is an attractive foraging strategy for scavengers. Right. Yeah. You have a t- tremendous ability to uh, to take in the surrounding region. But they also could have skimmed fish from freshwater lakes and rivers. Uh, That's one theory. But it's also been pointed out that they likely lacked the neck structure and jaw to really carry that out. A more likely hypothesis apparently is that they fed much like a modern stork, stalking shorelines for large and small prey alike. Hmm. And uh, I have to say that that is a terrifying possibility because if you've ever seen footage of storks engaging in this sort of terrestrial hunting practice – it can be it can be pretty horrifying. I accidentally showed uh, some footage from a documentary. I want to say it was uh, Disney's Flamingo documentary uh, to my son, and uh, he was younger at the time. And there's this scene where the stork just is stalking the shore and gobbling up live flamingo chicks. Ugh. And yeah, it's it's absolutely horrifying. After he saw that, 
there was some at some later point we'd forgotten about it, and then we tried to show him a cartoon that has you know the typical like stork and baby motif. Mm-hmm. It might have been uh, one of the, the the Pixar shorts, and he was instantly not having any of it. He's like, I know what storks are about. And you're wow. not going to show me this this uh, this short film that involves human babies and storks because I know what's going to happen. That baby is going to get gobbled. Ugh. No, I mean we we try to present a level headed view of predation in nature, but sometimes I just do have a visceral emotional reaction, and I know exactly what you're talking about. I haven't seen storks, but I've seen video of um, I believe it was in a some David Attenborough narrated documentary mm-hmm. um that had not storks but pelicans eating baby birds oh. uh just horrifying watch it like the the way they don't blink they just got these big mm-hmm. lower beak areas and they just scoop up the baby birds in and they're like wings and legs poking out of their mouth and stuff is just horrible oh frightful so no, I'm sorry. No, I shouldn't apply that moralistic tone to nature, but like it, it is hard to watch. But here's the question. With a Quetzalcoatlus, would it be able to scoop sunbathers up from a New York rooftop? <laughs> I would say probably not. I think it would need to <laughs> land in Central Park uh, where it would still have plenty to eat. It could attack picnickers and uh, like young people making out on blankets, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, school groups that have arrived there to play soccer or whatnot. There's so much to eat in Central Park. Hey, we've seen Pizza Rat. Now you get Pizza Quetzalcoatlus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just the, the junk food. It doesn't need to even deal with live prey. All right. Well, as we begin to close things out here, uh, I, I do want to mention that there there. Quetzalcoatl has has survived uh, to a certain extent or reemerged in culture. It hasn't been like the complete second coming that was perhaps prophesized, but uh, he remains a, a figure of interest. Uh, and sometimes you you actually see physical, like new physical manifestations of him. Uh, there's a really cool Quetzalcoatl statue in San Jose, California, for instance. Uh, I've, I have not seen it in person yet, but uh, I was reading about it on uh, Atlas Obscura. And it points out that it's downtown, uh, it's very Aztec in style, and it was controversial back in the 90s as it, it cost about half a million dollars. And also some Christian fundamentalists claimed that this was, this was going to be a, a place of, uh, of, uh, where you know, people were going to worship a bloodthirsty god. Oh, yeah. They were saying that it, there were going to be human sacrifices at yeah. the statue. <laughs> Which, of course, based on everything we've discussed uh, regarding this god, that was not going to be the case. Uh, or if it was, it would have been very uh, misinformed uh, cultist showing up there. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, other critics just argued that it was uh, a religious sculpture on public grounds and then shouldn't be allowed. But then there's uh, the criticism that they say that the, the 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 sculpture kind of looks like coiled dog poop. Well, I guess coiled serpents sometimes do. Yeah. Well, it's pointed out on Atlas Obscura, uh, and there is no author attributed on this particular article. Uh, the positioning here isn't crazy, uh, especially when you look at some of the um, uh, architectural motifs of, say, the Aztecs of Quetzalcoatl. Uh, and uh, it also matches up with this uh, description that uh, of the god that D.H. Lawrence made in his 1926 novel, The Plume Serpent, where he describes, quote, snakes coiled like excrement, snakes fanged and feathered beyond all dreams of dread. Hmm. I have not ventured into that D.H. Lawrence uh, book. Lawrence's novel, by the way, uh, concerns the Mexican Revolution and a cult attempting to revive the old religion of Mexico. And he apparently wanted to title the book uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl, but his publishers disagreed. Uh, I can see why. Uh, like, nobody's going to be able to pronounce that. <laughs> well, it's probably one of the reasons probably Larry Cohen's film was called Q or Q the Winged Serpent, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, one other point of possible interest, uh, I haven't now, read— Now, wait, wait a minute. Do you think that— Larry Cohen's movie was in any way based on the D.H. Lawrence novel. <laughs> <laughs> I have not read anything to suggest that it was. Um, I, and I would say that no, it's probably not. But in a maybe, maybe so, in a very Larry Cohen kind of way. Like he picked up on it, like cultist, bringing back an old religion, let's get a giant monster in there and you got a movie. Yeah. On another literary note, I'm very interested to check out, I haven't read these yet, but uh, the author Aliette de Bedard wrote the Obsidian and Blood Trilogy, a trilogy of books that uh, I've seen described as a like pre-Columbian Aztec noir. Ooh, that sounds cool. Yeah, so I'm I'm interested to check that out. And again, I want to um, uh, uh, say that um, Anaya's book uh, that I referenced at the top of the podcast is is an excellent read, is an excellent read, and uh, readily available in uh, like uh, you know Kindle and physical format. Uh, however, you like to read your books. 
Awesome. I think I'll be checking that one out. All right. So there you have it. Uh, we've gone from uh, B-movie monsters to uh, Mesoamerican gods to prehistoric creatures, uh, uh, flying snakes. Uh, what more could you ask for? Well, you could ask for more uh, monster science content, which we will be bringing to you for the rest of the month. That's right. Uh, you can check out all these episodes at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. That's where you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. That's where you will find uh, a tab at the top of the page that has our store on it. Click go to the store. Buy some merchandise with our logo. Uh, it's a great way to support the show. But if you don't want to spend money and you want to support the show, then rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. It really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, and so forth, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.